The Word of God today is from Acts chapter 16, verses 13 through 24. I'm going to read it out loud. If you would read it along with me silently. And we're going to be talking about what the relationship is between the gospel and wealth. Hear the word of God. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and um, brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. The, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is the word of God. We have two people here, or two groups of people. We have Lydia and her household, and we have the masters and their fortune teller the slave girl. Now, when you think about wealth, typically there are two extremes you can take in its, in its relationship to the gospel and Christianity. You can take the extreme that if you obey God and follow his will, that God will bless you with riches. The other extreme is that if you really want to follow God, you have to actually be poor. And it's the poor people who are God's people. Um, both of them are not taught by the scriptures itself. Both of them are interpretations that take the teaching of the scripture further than what the scripture allows for. So it's neither, it's neither a prosperity gospel, nor is it a poverty gospel. To be truly holy, you don't need to be poor. Or to be truly blessed by God, you don't need to be rich. To understand the role of wealth and the gospel in our lives, we need to see what's going on not with just Lydia or not with just the masters and their slave girl, but we need to see what's going on with both. And we need to see how it's different and what are some things that are similar. What does it mean? Can a Christian be wealthy? Can a Christian seek a certain type of life that is profitable 
and still be faithful? Or can a Christian not be financially well off and be perceived as diligent and not lazy before God? These are some questions that are common uh, that maybe we make judgments on without even thinking. So when we look at Lydia and her household, and when we look at the slave girl and her masters, there are points that they all share in common. But the way that those points are manifested diverge, and they stand in contrast to each other. For example, the first thing that we see that both of them share is that both of them are found in a place of prayer. Both the fortune teller is at a place of prayer, and also Lydia is at a place of prayer. So when Paul and Silas, when they were going into this city called Thyatira, they were looking for an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to people because this is, they're doing missions. They're basically telling people who've never heard of Jesus Christ, um, they're telling them about Jesus Christ for the first time. And they find them in a place of prayer, a place on the Sabbath where people are gathered outside, and it was by the riverside, and they were there to pray and for some of them, they were there for other reasons. For Lydia, she was definitely there to pray. She was there to listen and learn. And if you look at verse 14, she was listening and she, was, she wanted to learn what God had to say. But when you look at the fortune teller and their masters, um, they weren't at the place of prayer to pray or worship. They were there to make a profit and they were doing a heck of a job making that profit. There's nothing wrong with God providentially leading people in the midst of their primary activity to worship in a place like this. There's nothing wrong with God opening up opportunities and situations where someone can financially benefit from someone else through personal relationships and interactions. There's nothing wrong with that. For example, if someone came in here and was a contractor, right, and we wanted, we wanted to change our building in some way, there's nothing wrong with a person, that contractor, coming here and worshiping with us and living with us, uh, but we paying that person to help renovate our sanctuary. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's something completely different from someone who specifically comes into church to make a profit. And that's the primary reason. This is where the core of non-Christian values of making, of, have, of setting profit as, as the goal, where those values mix with Christian values of worship and prayer. And that's what, what was and that's what was happening in Thyatira. What's really interesting is that if you take this passage and you compare it with Revelation two, in Revelation chapter two, among the seven churches that Jesus sends letters to, 
there's one church that is from Thyatira. It was the church of Thyatira. And Jesus had something good to say about Thyatira, that they were diligent in their love and in their service. But there was something that Jesus said to Thyatira that he said, this is what you're doing wrong. And what they were doing wrong was they were tolerating Jezebel. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, Jezebel became queen of Israel. She was not a Jew, and she was not a worshiper of God. But she became the queen of God's people. And what she did was she brought in Baal worship. She brought in the worship of her own people and her own idolatries into Israel, and she forcefully and sometimes violently made the people of Israel not only worship Yahweh, but also worship Baal. And there was a mixing of values. There was a mixing of values of worshiping God with the values of worshiping Baal. And it's interesting that in Revelation, they would take this Old Testament history and they would apply it to this city of Thyatira. And from its beginning, where the gospel first went into Thyatira, there was that problem. You had people like Lydia who were there to listen and learn. But then you had people like the masters who sent their fortune teller in, the slave girl, and they didn't care about prayer, and they didn't care about listening and learning to the Word of God. But what they did care about was making a profit. Another thing that they hold similar, so the first thing is that there's a place of prayer. You have two kinds of people, but very different from each other as far as why they're there. Another common ground that they hold is that both were wealthy. Lydia was wealthy, and the masters of the fortune teller, they were wealthy. If you look at the scriptures, the masters were making a profit, and they were doing it well. Lydia was a seller of purple fabrics. And if you know your history, purple was the color for royalty, and so it was very expensive. But the thing about Thyatira was it was the center for dyeing, for dyes, right? Purple dyes. What they did was most people used an animal, like shellfish, to create purple dyes. But in Thyatira, they found a new way uh, to engineer their fabrics uh, with the color purple. They used a root, a plant. It was a plant-based dye. And it was considered to be the most vibrant, most rich dye among the other dyes that were being made in other cities. So Thyatira was famous for it. And so they were making a killing. And Lydia was very rich. She was doing very well. And so you see, whether you are in a place where you come to pray, versus in a place where you're there to make a profit, right? They were both wealthy. And so the question is not whether you should be wealthy or not wealthy in order to be a good Christian or a faithful Christian. The question is a little bit more complicated than that. The third thing that they shared is that they were both worshipers. Lydia was a worshiper of God. But 
these, the masters, they were worshipers of themselves. When you look at Lydia, in verse 14, she was listening to the gospel, and in the midst of her listening to the gospel, right? And remember, listening is not just hearing, right? Listening is an act, it's a very active thing where you're engaging your mind and your heart, right? In the midst of listening to the gospel, the Lord opened her heart, and she responded well, positively, to the gospel. That word responded in Greek literally means to hold to something, to cling to something. So when she responded, it wasn't this kind of where this kind of response where she was like, well, you know, that's really interesting. I think that's a really cool thought. And I think I can kind of use that in my life, right? She responded to the gospel. Literally, she held on to the gospel, meaning the gospel had changed her, her identity. It changed who she was. It changed what she valued as important and didn't value. It changed how she thought about life and people. It changed how she felt about life and people and her future, right? It changed her so much that the gospel became center of how she thought and how she felt and how she planned her life. Now this is a big problem for Lydia. The reason is Thyatira, it was not only known for its famous purple dye, that, that was plant-based dye, it was also known as the city of guilds, the city of social clubs and elitist clubs, meaning Every artisan, every person who was skilled in a trade was part of a guild in Thyatira, right? So, for example, the coppersmiths, the people who worked, the metal workers, right, specifically copper, they were part of a guild. They were part of an organization of coppersmiths, of metal workers. And so were the, so were the dye makers. So Lydia was part of a guild of other people whose business was to make dyes. And the reason why her clinging and holding on to the gospel became a problem for her life was because one of the main things that the guilds were doing in Thyatira was they were holding feasts. They were holding parties. And in these parties, the main uh, attraction were sexually immoral activities. Okay? That was the main thing. It was openly accepted. It was a sexual revolution. And people were fine with it in that city. And that was the thing to do. You ask why? Well, it's based upon their mythology and their native religion. The reason why they did that wasn't just for the pleasure of sex. That was part of it. But they actually believed that by going through these communal orgies, they felt that it would force the gods to open up the mysteries and the secrets and the, and the divine knowledge that they had so that they can use that, they can know that, and use it in their lives to have more control over their lives so that they can be better coppersmiths, so that they can be better dye workers, so that they can be more lucrative and successful people. In other words, they were going through these, uh, these institutional parties that were highly immoral 
from the gospel's perspective because it made their lives more successful. And you see, the problem was that Lydia has come to a point where she now, the Lord has opened up her heart and she has responded to the gospel. In other words, she has clung to the gospel and the gospel has become the center of her life. But she's part of this guild. And now she has two worlds that are colliding that cannot be reconciled with each other. When you look at church history, it teaches that the Christians in Thyatira, they started teaching that if you're a Christian, you should not be a part of these guilds, right? And it wasn't something forced. It was something that they willingly accepted. They said, okay, I will not be part of these associations and these institutions and these organizations because it is in direct contradiction with what I have come to believe in Jesus Christ. And so Lydia, that's what she did. And the thing is, that doesn't mean she wasn't wealthy anymore. If you actually go to the later chapter in Acts, Lydia pops up again. And in that time, she's all these believers in the city are coming to her home, and they're being encouraged, and they're being supported. In other words, she became not only a financially strong home for Christians to come and find rest and encouragement, but she became a spiritually strong home, right? She was well off, not just financially, but spiritually, because she met not only the physical needs of people who came, but she also met the spiritual needs of the, of the believers who came to her home. And you see, giving that up is not giving up wealth. That's too simplistic. What she did was she gave up trying to control her wealth. It's a subtle difference, but it's a major difference. She didn't give up her wealth because God continued to give her wealth, despite the fact that she dissociated herself with those guilds, right? She gave up control. She gave up trying to make sure that she was the one who would secure her life success. And instead, she gave it up to the Lord. And you see that Lydia, in this passage, she comes across as this person who, after receiving the gospel, she's just open to God and how he leads in her life. She's not trying to control her life and making sure all the pieces are in the right place. She's not trying to play this game of life where she's trying to climb the ladder in the most manipulated and most thought out way so that she can end up in the specific successful place that she wants to be, right? She hasn't let go of her wealth. She has let go of trying to control that wealth, right? And that's the difference between her and the wealthy masters who are making a killing on this fortune teller. They refuse to let go of that control. They also had influence on other people. Both Lydia and the masters of the fortune teller, they had influence. Lydia, after receiving the gospel, it says in verse 15, her 
and her entire household, which included not only the people in her biological family, but the servants in her family, which also shows that she was well off because she could afford to have servants. Um, they were all baptized. Now, before you think that this was forced, that Lydia, after being indoctrinated and proselytized by, Christian, by the Christian message, and she forced her family members and her servants, who didn't even want to, to be baptized, that's not the case. The way that you should think of this is by looking at Ruth and what happened with Ruth and Naomi in chapter 1, verse 16. In Ruth, chapter 1, verse 16, Ruth, who is a Moabitess, who, is, who seems at this point is not fully convinced to be a part of God's people. She says, do not urge me. She's talking to Naomi, her mother-in-law, who's a Jew. So this Moabitess says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. You see, that's the way you should understand this. When Lydia, when it says Lydia and her entire household was baptized, perhaps we can be comfortable saying all of them were converted, perhaps. But maybe it was more like Ruth, where she didn't have this solid foundation of Christian faith yet, but she knew one thing. She loved Naomi and how Naomi loved God. And because of her relationship with Naomi, even though she wasn't fully convinced theologically and she didn't have all the, all the philosophical pieces figured out, she had one thing figured out and she knew if God, if Naomi, if God is the God of Naomi, then, I, then, God, then Naomi's God is the God of me. Let me say that again. If God is the God of Naomi, then God, Naomi's God, is the God of me. That's what she's saying. That's her logical conclusion. She's saying, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And you see, that's the influence that Lydia had on her family and even upon her servants, which stands in bleak contrast to how, this, how the masters treated their fortune teller, the slave girl. They just treated her as a means of profit and gain. There was no relationship. But for Lydia and for Ruth and Naomi, because of that solid relationship and love for one another, right, the gospel found a fertile ground to grow and to blossom in. Now, for the masters, their influence was after they heard what Paul and Silas did to their fortune teller, which, by the way, Paul and Silas, they basically took away everything from that fortune teller because they said, Paul said to the spirit that was filling this slave girl because that, that demonic spirit that was filling her was giving her the ability to tell fortunes. Okay. Paul said, get out of her. And so the spirit left, and of course... When the, when the demonic spirit left the slave girl, all her profitable abilities left as well. And when that happened, the masters, they got furious. And the scriptures tell us 
because they lost their means of profit. She's not even a person, right? It was a means of getting financial gain. Because they lost that, they started attacking Paul and Silas. They physically seized them, the scripture says. They took them, brought them before the magistrates, the Roman political figures who were ruling Thyatira. And they accused them of attacking Roman culture and law. And they were very persuasive because what happened was they were imprisoned and they were beaten. Those magistrates, they had assistants. And back then, these assistants would carry around bundles of like wooden sticks. And they would do that in order to beat the people there who would not conform to the city's laws and expectations, right? So that's what happened. They brought him before these magistrates, and then Paul and Silas were beaten. They were punished. So what they essentially did when they disagreed with the gospel and disagreed with the effect of the gospel upon their lives and what it took from them, the control for wealth, right? They decided to punish the people who caused it. Now, the next thing, and the last thing, is the reception. This is where they diverge. Lydia received Paul and Silas into her home. Lydia invited the missionaries into her home. Hospitality was very important, and it was a way of living. It was a way of living out the gospel that you believed. You know, sometimes there's a disconnect between what you believe and think and how you live your life. Hospitality, when you invite people to your home because God in Christ invites you to his family and to his banqueting table, right? that, be, that destroys the disconnect between theology and life. Right? That's one very practical way that you destroy that disconnect. But for the masters, they didn't receive Paul and Silas. Instead, they had him thrown in prison. They rejected them. You see, when we talk about wealth, it's, it's more complicated than we would think, right? Now, you can make an excuse and say, yeah, God blesses me, and yeah, and even wealth is God's, it's, it's God's gift, right? Now, you can keep it at a very general principle level and just leave it at that and justify it. But when you really think through it and you think about what Lydia gave up, what she didn't give up, what the masters weren't willing to give up, their control, and what they were willing to give up, really seeing if the gospel is true and if it's true, really their lives becoming changed by it, you see that the topic and the role of wealth and the gospel together is a little bit more complex than you would think. It's not as simple as saying that once you believe in God and you follow his rules, he's going to make you rich. And it's not as simple as saying, well, if you really love God, you'll be poor and you won't seek to be rich at all. Those are very easy answers that we can put out, but they are not biblical answers. I want to leave you with two things about wealth. 
after studying this passage together before we head out here. Wealth is not a goal to achieve, but we should seek the genuine worship of God as our life priority. The worship of God is when your heart is surrendered to the rule and leading of God over one's over your life. And you evidence that life by living out what God teaches. Worship of God is basically you surrendering to the rule and leading of God. Right? So when you look at Hebrews, right? In Hebrews, it says, keep your life free from the love of money. Chapter 13, verse 5. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see that reasoning? For some of us, it's not very satisfying because it says, okay, free from the love of money. Sure, I'll do that. I'll keep, I'll keep myself free from the love of money as long as I have a guarantee for a secure source of money without me having to worry about it. I'll be free from it. But that's not what the promise is. The promise is, keep your life free from the love of money, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's saying, because I have a relationship with you, you should be free from the love of money. Job 19, verses 25 through 26, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh... I shall see God. When Job used the word redeemer, it was the Hebrew word for kinsman redeemer. Now, if you don't know what the kinsman redeemer is, the kinsman redeemer back in the Old Testament times was a law where a male relative would marry a woman whose husband died in order to make sure that she wasn't childless and that she wasn't overcome by poverty. That's the kinsman redeemer. So when Job says, I know that my redeemer lives, he's talking about people who have lost and weren't able to secure and control benefits in life and trusting God to provide and care for their needs. As long as that relationship with God was first and foremost and central. So if the wealth was there, and if it wasn't there, that wasn't the issue, right? The issue is the relationship with God, the worship of God. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 4, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, that relationship with the Lord is the center point for being able to face poverty or wealth with unshaking identity. So first, wealth is not the goal to achieve, but wealth can be used to worship God and to make sure that the worship of God is the life priority. And lastly, wealth should be a means of influencing others with the gospel. Right? We look at wealth, 
and we think it's something that should benefit us. But Christians who have a relationship with the Lord, they understand that wealth, it's, having it is not evil, and not having it is not evil either. It's not a bad thing either. With wealth, with whatever God gives us, it, is, it has been given to us to help those around us. That's what wealth is for. And help is not just social, financial help, but it is to cultivate that worship relationship with the Lord. Right? That's what it's about. By the way, side note, for you single people looking to get married, if you think about the kinsman redeemer, right? Um, the kinsman redeemer got married not in order to benefit him or herself, not in order to feel better about themselves or to feel more fulfilled and successful in life. They got married so that that woman who was a widow would not be struck with childlessness and poverty. The goal of marriage was for the benefit of the other. The goal of that relationship was to benefit someone else. And the same thing, it's the same case with wealth. God gives it to us, or he withholds it from us, whatever. Let's be like Paul in Philippians and say, rich or poor, right? Rich or poor, as long as my Redeemer lives, and that he is my Redeemer, right? That's what I would be content with. And that's what I define success as. That God is my God and I am his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for bringing us together. And I pray that you abide with us. Remind us, God, that beyond wealth or poverty, that what's most important is that relationship with you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you, re, you cause us to be able to worship you and not ourselves. To have an attitude where we will not feel a need to control our financial futures, our, our, our security, but to find contentment in knowing that our life security and our life success and our future is in your hands. And whether you give or whether you take it away, that's up to you, God. And we don't care as long as we have a relationship with you, as long as we are yours and that you are our God. Lord, instill in us a certainty and an assurance that the greatest security that we have in our lives cannot be found in the things of the world, but is found in the Son who has been given to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please arise with me as we sing our response song.